We as a society grief shame people in the same way that we body shame them. The person is going through a natural process of mourning and deep grief and we shame them. And quite frankly, I'm pissed off about it. I think it's despicable. I think we stop healing in its tracks. I think we're hurting people. I think I think it's toxic, John. I, I think that this whole grief shaming culture that we live in uh, is toxic. And I think it's part of a bigger mindset where we don't want to, uh, you know, we, we don't want people to be human. We don't want them to, we, we, we see it as a flaw. We see vulnerability and sorrow as weaknesses. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your host, John Williamson, and we are back with episode three, but really part two of our series on grief and grieving. And uh, when I was thinking back months ago uh, in, in, in a desire to kind of put this series together somewhat selfishly for my own uh, benefit, you know, uh, I, I always feel like, especially through this podcast, that a lot of the guests we have on are because... Uh, we're generally just curious about a certain thing, and so um, to be able to explore it via you know an interesting conversation on the podcast, and hopefully in some way benefiting you, the listener, um, you know, I, I keep those things in mind as I, I try to book guests. And so, when I was thinking about it, obviously Megan Devine immediately came to mind, but also our dear friend Jacqueline Bussey, who's been on the show twice before. Um, you know, there's a chapter in her book Love Without Limits that always kind of uh, you know, I came back to because I think she and uh, and uh, Megan Devine <clears throat> uh, speak a lot of the same language in, in terms of their approach to grief and grieving. And and uh, you know, Jacqueline's book obviously was written uh, a, a while before, um, so it almost seems like they are are just uh, without realizing it, kind of on the same wavelength, uh, which is pretty pretty neat. But uh, I felt like this was a good. Um, good marriage in terms of, uh, of podcast episodes to have back to back. And so I invited Jacqueline to come back on and, and, uh, what's interesting. And we, and we talk about this on the episode is she wrote this chapter, um, years before she would firsthand encounter grief in her own life. Um, we talk about the fact she lost her, her husband, Matt on a, uh, anniversary trip, um, literally on, on a tour and, um, and he collapsed and passed away um, right before her. And, um, obviously we were, you know, she was devastated. We were devastated for her. Uh, and so we talk about, you know, did, you know, her words still ring true to her, you know, after experiencing it in a, in a more very, you know, tangible personal way. So we, we talk all about that on the episode. And, uh, again, this will be part one of two parts. So hopefully you enjoyed this. But uh, for those of you who have not uh, had the pleasure of listening to the first two episodes, definitely encourage you to go back and listen to the first two times we had her on. Uh, she is the uh, award-winning author of uh, the books Outlaw Christian and Love Without Limits, uh, won many, many awards for, for both books, and has, a, has an amazing story uh, behind the second book, Love Without Limits. So go back. We talk way more in depth about that. Uh, but uh, Jacqueline is a theologian, a speaker, author. Um, if you get a chance to see her live, it's it's amazing. She is uh, absolutely electric um, and one of my favorite personalities to always have on and just uh, a loving, caring individual. Um, there's, there's not too many people out there like, quite like her. So 
hopefully you guys enjoy this and uh, hopefully again this series in general i'm i'm hoping uh is reaching you out there and is, is serving a, a good purpose and, and is helpful in some way and so um that is my hope for you so enjoy this uh as always if you uh if you want to stay connected on everything that we're up to uh, revamp the Patreon. You can find the Patreon link through our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. If you want to support us there, um, I am being a very good boy and I am, uh, and trying very, very hard to <laughs> make sure I'm regularly posting, uh, some exclusive content on there for you. Um, and so revamp some of the, uh, uh, what do they call them? Packages, you know, um, with different types of merch that you can get that ships directly to you. And for the first time ever, thank you, Patreon, uh, is available to be shipped anywhere in the world. So if you're a listener um, overseas somewhere uh, across the world, uh, you too uh, can have a, uh, a tote bag or something with our with our big old logo on it. So uh, so that's new. And uh, just in general, I'm trying to uh, find more exclusive content to, to put on there. And so uh, you'll get advanced uh, access to blog posts. I'm writing a lot more lately. And so uh, hopefully you guys have seen uh, the blog post there, but also uh, eventually it will end up on our blog on the website, uh, as well as a treasure trove of photos that I've found. Uh, I was going through my photo albums and uh, found a ton of stuff that we, you know, took a lot of pictures we took behind the scenes uh, from doing the podcast for over seven years now. So posting those uh, periodically as well as on our new TikTok account. So follow us there. Um, What else? Oh, and then, of course, if you like the full, if you still love the whole like hour long episode, I'm uh, releasing those early in their full, unedited, uncut entirety uh, for any Patreon subscribers who subscribe at uh, the $10 increment or more. Uh, Those will be available about a week prior to the first episode dropping uh, of that particular guest uh, on on Patreon. So if you like the full thing and you want to hear it all in one, uh, all in one bang, you know, there you go. Uh, It'll be up there. So. Uh, but otherwise, thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate all the support. Um, it ain't easy for uh, independent podcasters out there, especially in a in a universe now that is just inundated and saturated with all sorts of podcasts. Appreciate you guys hanging in and, and listening and supporting the podcast in, in, in any way you can. Um, you know, word of mouth is the biggest way that our podcast has has gained new listeners over the years. Um, you know, we're we're not famous. <laughs> you know, we we're nobody's who live in Ohio, uh, where it is cold and rainy most of the year. And um, and yeah, so and we're not on a network or anything like that. And so so we just appreciate any word of mouth. Um, you know that you can uh, you can spread the the message, the good word of of what we're doing over here. So appreciate all of you. Love you all. Hope everyone is uh, is hanging in there. It's almost springtime, or I guess it is springtime by the time this comes out. So hopefully it's warmer, uh, but enjoy this episode. This is part one with our dear friend, Jacqueline freaking Bussy. If God has a face, his face must look like yours. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. I think you now are tied 
for the title of uh, uh, most frequent guest on the podcast. Welcome back, <laughs> Jacqueline <laughs> Buffy. So lucky, John. Thank you. <laughs> it's like you and Pete Rollins and Dr. Alexander Shia, and uh, um, I'm sure there's another out there, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm in good company then. Yay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very loving, wonderful humans. Um, so there's a there's a, a slightly selfish reason I think that I I'm, I'm having you back on uh, today, and um, and people would have will have heard kind of my introduction into this series by this point, and so um, obviously you and I uh, share a kind of a sad and devastating thing in common. Um, we lost uh, some folks who were near and dear to us that we love dearly, and um, have had to figure out what life looks like now. Um, after having gone through that. And, um, I, I echo my dad's sentiments in that. I think, uh, the chapter in your book, love without limits on grief is one of the best things I've ever read. And I think it's extremely helpful and it, and it elicits a dialogue that needs to happen, um, within our communities. Um, Thank you. Thanks for saying yeah, that. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> However, when you wrote this chapter though, um, you, you pull a lot from personal experience, which is what makes this book beautiful. It's a lot of personal stories, but when you originally wrote this chapter, it was really more so, um, focused on your relationship with your mom and, and going through the loss of your mother. Uh, but since then, obviously you've gone through, um, arguably an even closer, um, loss. So, um, how has this changed kind of the way in which you view, um, your writing here? Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate your starting there, John, because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You know, so let me just back up and share that. So Love Without Limits just had to come out in the second edition this summer. And what that meant was I also had to do an audiobook for the first time. And to be honest with you, I was dreading it a little bit. I mean, I had to audition. Most people don't realize that authors do not always get to narrate their books. Of course, the you know producers of audiobooks want books that are going to sell, so they want <laughs> professional narrators. So I had to audition. So I felt very fortunate that I got to that I was going to be the one to do it. But then I started to worry, and the reason I started to worry is what you're referencing. So I wrote this book in 2016, 2017. That chapter was written in 2017. And at that time, my uh, beloved husband and best friend of 38 years was very much alive and, you know, the love of my life. And um, he tragically and unexpectedly died in August of 2021. He was not ill. We had no forewarning, not even five minutes. And he actually died of something called sudden death syndrome, which is very rare in adults, but is, um, we sometimes hear about it with infants, you know, babies, as sudden infant death syndrome. You hear of that for infants, but it can actually happen to an adult and nothing is more shocking. You know, you're laughing, you're talking, literally he was standing up, um, and then he died right in front of my eyes. And it was the most traumatic experience I can imagine having happen. I was abroad. We were on a dream anniversary vacation in Iceland just to add to it. We didn't know anyone in the entire nation. Anyway, so I, so that, you know, fast forward to um, maybe about six months later, it's time for me to record the audiobook, John. And I was mm. like, oh, no. Oh no. Cause my thought was, I am terrified to even go back and read what I wrote about grief because I felt 
100% confident it would be a lie. You know, it, mm. it would just be a mistake. It wouldn't be that I did it on purpose. It would just be that I didn't understand, you know, the depths of that kind of grief. Um, losing my mom, you know, it's a terrible thing to lose a mom. On the other hand, that is a natural order of events. In, in, you know, in a way, my mother was oh, terribly young, you know, just as young really as, as my husband, almost almost the same. They're both in their early 50s. Um, which is too young. And so like not every death is tragic in the same way, right? Because we could live a full life and live to be 90. But my um, my mother and my husband were both robbed. I mean, quite frankly, you know, in that kind of circumstance, I think death is a thief. And I thought, oh no, oh no, I've got to read this book aloud. Like what if I don't believe what I said? And that was my suspicion. And I was really scared, not about other parts of the book, but that particular chapter. So I was working with the producer in the studio in Minneapolis, the recording studio. And it came time, you know, for that chapter. And I thought, oh, no. And you know what's interesting was I thought, I'm not going to read it in advance. I can't, you know, because like, what if then I, I'm, I'm obligated to do this? I'm contracted. So I uh, began the reading. And I continued with the reading. And the most shocking, and I'll name it comforting, thing of all was that what I said was not BS. And I could still stand by it. And I was shocked. And, you know, there are parts of it that, uh, you know, that you're, you're like, mm, you know, I, I want to nuance that. That needs nuance. That needs expansion. That needs some edits. But the overall message, I thought, oh, my God, I still believe it. You know, I wasn't a fraud. But the most amazing part about that was, was the thought, John, that what, that that proved to me something that I have long believed, which is that writing is a mystical act. Because I had no way of, I was not a survivor of trauma at that time. I had no way of knowing those things. Like it proved to me that the wisdom that I spoke was a real wisdom, but that it didn't come from me. It came from a place that is beyond me. And I think that all the best writing does that. I think that all of my best writing, I've talked with other writers and I'm like, whoa, like where did that come from? I, I write sentences. They're not mine. I'm not an idiot. Like, you know, and reading that proved to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have, I don't know what the word is, you know, like what people are comfortable with. But for me, I am comfortable with the word muse. I'm comfortable with the way that someone like Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, has helped us understand the etymology of the word genius, because the mm -hmm. word genius used to be not about you. She's got a whole TED <laughs> talk. And the word genius is that genius is like a genie. Like a genie is someone who comes to you. Like it's not about you. It's not your ego. Right. So it used to be if you said that someone had a genius, that, that, that a bit of genius, a bit of ancient wisdom from the ancestors came to them and gave them something that needed to be said. And so I felt like uh, this is proof for me. So that's my, that's kind of my long answer to your question, because I feel like, wow, that just proved to me something about the writing process that um, makes me believe 
I'm a conduit for something. I'm a conduit for our ancestors and for the universe and for things that need to be said. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. I've heard um, musicians talk about, you know, when they write like a really amazing, profound lyric that they're like, that wasn't me. I I was just tapping into something for that brief moment. And that just came out of me. I don't, I don't know where it came from. It just came out of me. And it was important to those hearing it. Like the audience needed to hear this. And I I think that's true. As somebody who grew up in the, you know, within a a very musical family, you know, I think music does the same thing, writing poetry, um, you know, the, the arts really, you know, visual art expresses things in a way that, you know, we can't otherwise. And I I think your writing absolutely falls in that category. You write, I've said a long time, I've described your writing as, as poetry, you know, like you have a gift. Thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny you say that because my beloved mentor was a poet. He was a poet. That makes sense. He was a Pulitzer Prize nominated poet. And I'll never forget, you know, so people think, oh, I was trained by theologians and, you know, religion professors. And in a way, yeah, but that's not my original and best mentor. Everybody who knows me knows that it was actually um, Dr. Tony Abbott, who was a Pulitzer Prize nominated poet. And I'll never forget when I, my book, my first, very first book won a, won a big prize and they flew me to like this club in New York city, you know, for me to like win the prize and, you know, give a talk and whatever. And everybody around the table was like, who's your mentor? And they're all, cause it's a religion book, right? So they're all expecting yeah. like some theologian, you know? And I said, uh, Tony Abbott. <laughs> and everybody at the table was like, nobody knew who it was except one person who was a lover of poetry, he goes, oh, and he gasped and he goes, Tony Abbott, the poet. And I said, yes. And he goes, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Cause he said, it you does. don't write, you don't write like a religion scholar. He's like, that's yeah. not what you do. He said, you write like a poet. And to me, that was the greatest compliment. And I told Tony about that and he cried. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, that's, it's so true. I remember the first time I read uh, Love Without Limits because I read I read it backwards. So I think uh, my dad gave me a copy of Love Without Limits. Then I went back and, and read Outlaw Christian. But remember, the I read the intro of Love Without Limits and I just thought the way that you just end <laughs> the intro, I was like, holy cow. All right, here we go. <laughs> this is great. Oh. But that's a gift. I mean, there, there are a lot of academics out there. I've interviewed some of them who are absolutely brilliant. Um, but their writing is as dry as dry can be. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a rare gift to be able to articulate these, these very dense uh, theological or uh, philosophical ideas in a way that's really, you know, uh, beautiful. Mm. So, so yeah, um, I can't wait for whatever you write next. Wink, wink. <laughs> Thank you. Well, me neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to, to the beginning. So there, again, we're going to, for the, for the sake of this series, um, focus on your, on your chapter on grief and love without limits. Um, you talk about your experience of how it is that we respond as both a church and just as a society at large, even, you know, beyond the religious spectrum, um, in terms of just how poorly we respond to those who are going through grief. And you recount the story in your, I think you were 20, um, and just 
the reaction of those around you just to kind of shut it down and not allow you to really openly push into uh, the pain or the grief, as my my therapist would say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had this really terrible experience when my mother was, you know, diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Like you say, I started going to a counselor and I thought, Hey, what would be better than a Christian counselor? Cause I was super struggling in my faith. And I just had so many doubts and questions and like anger at God and the whole situation. Right. And so I thought, well, what could be better? I'm going to go to this Christian counselor. Right. So I found this counselor and went and it was my very first meeting with her. And I just started immediately, you know, like, cause I'm just that person. I just tell the truth. And I was like, I'm just so pissed off. You know, I'm angry at God and all this. And she like cut me off and she said, well, you know, Jacqueline, you know, that, um, despair is a sin against God. Right. And I was Uh. like, I was like, what? And then she quoted, um, Thessalonians at me, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. verse about that. We don't despair as one who does not have hope. So, I mean, she basically in that I never went back. I mean, I was devastated. I was like, whoa, whoa. I thought that going to counseling was about talking and telling the truth about how you felt and not being judged for it. Um, but she basically said, that's not Christian. You know, your, your views are unchristian. And I was, oh my gosh, just beside myself. It was a terrible experience. And reflecting on it later, I thought, huh, you know, what did she do like to me in that moment? And I've talked to other people like about how their grief was treated by others. And, you know, how many times people tell you, you just need to move on and you need to stop being self-pitying and, you know, all of the things that, that we say. And then of course this, this scripture that gets quoted out of context and, you know, saying, well, you know, contract, making it seem as if lament and grief are faithlessness, right. As if they are, um, sinful and bad and like unnatural and, you know, a loss of hope. And I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) So I was completely upset by this. And I started thinking about the ways that we body shame people and, you know, which is just making people feel, uh, self-hatred for the body that they've naturally been given and grief and lament have been given to us naturally. Okay. And that's important, I think, to remember. These are healthy healing processes that we should be going through. And it occurred to me that what that counselor had done and what so many people I know have experienced is what I call grief shaming. We as a society grief shame people in the same way that we body shame them. The person is going through a natural process of mourning and deep grief, and we shame them. And quite frankly, I'm pissed off about it. I think it's despicable. I think we stop healing in its tracks. I think we're hurting people. I think think it's toxic, John. I I think that this whole grief-shaming culture that we live in uh, is toxic. And I think it's part of a bigger mindset where we don't want to, uh, you know, we, we don't want people to be human. We don't want them to, we, we, we see it as a flaw. We see vulnerability and sorrow as weaknesses. We always have, you know, as a society. And that is completely twisted and wrong. <laughs> That's my opinion. So, 
Yeah. And, and I think the other part of it too, is that, um, yeah, I, I think I talked a little bit with, uh, Megan Devine about this and how, especially in like Western culture, we have this kind of like thing where, you know, you greet somebody on the street and you say, Hey, how's your, how are you doing? And like, there's only one acceptable answer there. It's like, Oh, I'm doing great. Even if your life is falling apart, it's like, right. we don't want to know how you're truly doing because it makes us uncomfortable. If you're doing it, if your life is going anywhere, but like up, 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 you know, it makes us very uncomfortable. We don't really want to sit with you in that uncomfortable space of, you know, you know, things are not going well, you know? Right. And, and I think you even reference this in the book too, where you talk about, um, uh, you make the joke and I think this is great by the way. Um, there's no real, like there's worship music and we're talking about how things are great, but there's no lament music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause that's really the, the, the balance of an actual, like real life, you know, it's like, yeah, there are happy moments, but there are also tragic moments too, but we only focus on one for some reason. Exactly. And think of how frustrating that is for people who are living their real lives, you know, in within congregations. I mean, yeah, I'm making it as sort of a joke, but how many congregations have a praise band? Count it in your head. There's so many, right? And how many <laughs> have a lament band? It's literally none. Right. And it's just like, oh, okay. So are we saying, even contrary to the actual scriptures, that all we have is praise, that we never have lament? Because last I checked, there's books called Lamentations, <laughs> you know, books <laughs> called Ecclesiastes, right. books called Job, which is nothing but nonstop lamenting for 37 chapters. Right. You know, so last I checked, we might want to be a little more, if it's about faithfulness, we're the ones who are unfaithful. If we are not lamenting and we're not grieving, that is actually faithless because that is not an accurate depiction of life. It's not an accurate depiction of scripture. It's not even an accurate depiction of Jesus, right? Who is completely sobbing at the death of his friend. So we just have to make more sense, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you talk about it. I love that part too, because when you talk about like kind of our approach as a society, uh, you, you, you run it up against how examples in the Bible where like Jesus has moments where Jesus is weeping and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't shame anybody for, for openly, um, you know, grieving. Uh, in fact, he grieves alongside them, even though, like, as you say, in one of the stories, he knows he's going to resurrect this guy later, you know, but that doesn't stop him from like, you know, like grieving openly with, alongside them. That's right. That's right. I mean, if we believe the story of Jesus and Lazarus, Jesus is the last person who should be bawling his eyes out. He knows how the story's going to end. You know, and when I do tell that story in the book, I, I, I say, you know, it's so interesting because when the people around Jesus see that Mary, Martha, they're sobbing, right? Their brother is dead. Jesus looks at them and what does he do? He cries also, right? He weeps. He weeps alongside them, like you said. And that is so interesting. I think it's interesting, not only for what Jesus does, but for what Jesus doesn't do. I think we have to look at the text and compare it to ourselves. What does Jesus not do? Does he say to Mary, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Don't, uh, don't grieve as one who doesn't have hope. Isn't that interesting? If he had said that, he'd just be quoting scripture like that Christian counselor did to me, right? Does he do that? Does he say, you know, like, hey, hey, you know, this is all going to be fine. It's okay. There's a resurrection, you know? Okay. No. 
He doesn't say <laughs> anything like that. In fact, like if you look at the at the um, New Testament Greek there and you look at the word that's being used, it's one of the, the deepest words that can be used um, in the scriptural Greek to say that Jesus is like twisted up in his guts. Like that's literally like what that word means. It means like down to your bowels, like you are upset. That is an extremely strong word, you know, um, that I would compare it to saying that like someone is so upset that they're about to explode, like in like a shaken up soda or something. That's, that's, that's really what the original language is conveying there. And it says that Jesus is deeply upset. It uses that, it uses that, the Greek word for that. Okay. So there's so much happening, right? You know, you've got Jesus is not grief shaming anyone. You've got grief, you've got Jesus, you've got a non-toxic masculinity Jesus. You've got a Jesus who says, no, toxic masculinity is BS. And I'm going to sob in this moment because somebody is dead whom I love. It's just that simple. Like you don't have Jesus like putting on the strong face, you know, for other people or because he's a quote unquote man. You don't have, you have him acting exactly like the women. So, I mean, there's just so much going on that we don't even think about in that passage that is so liberating. It liberates anyone who identifies as male from any version of toxic masculinity. You know, it just blurs everything. And it says like, no, what is the proper response? What is a healthy, faithful response when someone has died? No matter what we think is going to happen next, the answer is lament. The answer is our tears which is a placeholder for where words can't even capture how deep our sorrow is. So Mm -hmm. I just find that to be such an important scripture, and I always like to revisit it to see what does it actually really say to us, because I think we're not not paying close enough attention because we uh, tend to buy into the grief shame. Yeah, and you just made me think of a great t-shirt idea. (laughs) Yeah, what is it? Jesus wept, and so can you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And yet how many times do you hear people say to their, say to their little boy or their son, you know, Hey man up, you know, don't cry. I've right. heard that. I've heard that all the time. <sighs> I've heard it said to little girls and you know, whatever it's said to everyone, yeah. but it's toxic. Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so unhelpful. And it just, you know, it, it says, um, you know, like our, you know, our friend Pete, Pete Rollins, uh, the philosopher once said, you know, it, you know, when you repress and push things down like that, it comes out as symptoms in other ways, you know, and so it's not going to go away. And Megan Devine echoes that in her book too. It's like, you know, unacknowledged grief doesn't just go away. You know, it's going to resurface in some other form or fashion. It is. It is. And in my book, I call it unmetabolized grief. I think she and I are saying the same thing. And this gives me a chance to say, I think Megan Devine is a rock star. (laughs) And since my husband died, you know, and I know you've interviewed her as well. So it's, it's really fitting. I think that I share this um, with the audience that since my husband died, there's very little on grief that I can read Mm. because I kind of think that most of it's bullshit. Yeah. If I may say that. Uh, You may. Yeah, thank you. And so I, and I look, I was even worried about that about my own words. So, hey, fair enough. But actually, John, it was your dad, your dad of all things. I was speaking Mm. at his church in Indiana 
And mm-hmm. at the end, you know, Matt had recently died and they thought I was going to cancel on the speaking engagement. I said, no, no, I'd like to be mm-hmm. there. <clears throat> I'd like to be able to talk about this with people. I'd like to be able to process it because it's how I heal. I don't repress. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of my speaking engagement, your dad gave me a copy, his copy of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, which he said he had used as a chaplain. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. It sat on my shelf for a long time because a lot <laughs> of people have given me books since my dearly beloved Matt died. And mm-hmm. most of it's crap. Like I open the first page and I just want to tear my eyes out because mm-hmm. it's not at all speaking to where I am. And I know they're well-intentioned, right? So I'm, there's no judgment there. It's just I'm not going to read that book because it's toxic for me. But I started reading uh, It's Okay, You're Not Okay. And, and Megan Devine starts that book with just an epigraph that she, she had me. She had me by the hand in a way that mm-hmm. no other author did because the epigraph says something along the lines of this book is dedicated to those whose life is the stuff of other people's nightmares. Mm. Yeah. And everything that happened to me with my husband, literally being in a foreign country, literally him dying in front of my face, literally him not even being sick, me never getting to say goodbye, him gone in a second, mm. me being treated like a criminal by the Icelandic government. Um, I, it's people's nightmares. It's my own nightmare. So I know it's yours. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was willing to name what everybody else runs from, she had me. I stuck with it. I read the whole book. It's the only book on grief that I have finished (laughs) since my husband died. And I think it's the only one I need, quite frankly. Yeah. So. I think she and I, I we're, we're together. We've got, we're saying the same thing. We say it in different ways. She comes at it as from a therapy perspective. She's a therapist. I come at it from a theologian's perspective because I am a theologian, you know? So yeah, I love her. Yeah. Read the book, everybody. It's a great book. <laughs> and, and yet you guys use a lot of the same language. Um, you, you come to a lot of the same conclusions and I think that's uh, not, not a coincidence, you know? I think uh, I think the two of you have just figured out that we have an epidemic in this country in regards to the way in which we poorly. And she corrected me, by the way. I was like, I said poorly, and she's like, No, we do a shitty job. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, Okay, I was trying to be nice. I was trying to sugar it, sugarcoat it a little bit, but yeah, you're not wrong. Don't sugarcoat we do. it. It's shitty. It's just yeah, shitty. it's super shitty, and like we. You know, and, and the, the other weird aspect to it is there's this invisible time limit to which you can, you're allowed to, you know, grieve, you know, and then, and then suddenly it's, well, you're still sad about that. You're, what you're just sitting around moping about this. It's like, what? Like, I'm sorry. Since when did, is there like a specified period of time that I get to grieve and then I'm supposed to be just okay? Like my, as Megan says, you know, that person is still dead. Like they're not coming back. Like that void still exists in my life and it's never going to change. As my brother Andy put it, he said, there's a void inside of me that feels like it will never be filled. And I said, that's exactly how it feels. And so like, I'm sorry, but I'm allowed to grieve as long as I need to grieve. You know, that's exactly right. We got to claim that that Mm. invisible timeline is just another example of grief shaming. You're taking Mm. too long. When are you going to move on? Who is coming up with these things? It's just because our grief makes people uncomfortable who have not Mm -hmm. experienced a trauma like ours. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. 
No, I had somebody, you'll, you'll find this fascinating. The other day I've had probably, oh my gosh, 500 people say to me when they hear my story, they say, oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And then the other day, my friend Noah looked me in the face. He said the same thing. He hadn't seen me since Matt died. And he goes, oh, Jacqueline, I can't imagine. And then he stopped himself. And he said something so powerful. He goes, you know what? He goes, that's not true at all. He goes, I can imagine it. I can. And he said, it's just that I don't want to. Mm. And I said, thank you for being one of the only honest people in my life. I said, because you can't tell me that you can't imagine what this is like. Because all you need to do is take your worst nightmare, take that worst nightmare that you have when your beloved walks out the door, you know, and you think, oh, my God, don't die, you know. Mm -hmm. My one friend, she actually always says to her husband when he leaves on a trip, love you, baby. Don't die. Don't die on me. I never said things like that with my husband because I didn't really think about it, you know, with that level. But like, are you really telling me that somebody who's saying that can't imagine? Of course you can. Just take the worst thing that could ever happen in your life and imagine it. It's just that we don't want to. We don't want to imagine what is it like to be a person who is bombarded with racism every day, the way people of color are in this country. I'm white, right? So I can say, I think white people, I think we don't want to have to imagine that because I I think we can. I think we can imagine it and say, oh my God, like every day that level of microaggression and macroaggression, like it's so exhausting. Like I, so again, I think that's why the imagination exists. Why does the imagination exist? If we can't literally imagine what it would be like. Imagination sparks compassion because we, it's true. We can't imagine it a hundred percent. Okay. I'm totally willing to grant that. I'm totally like, there's things I can't imagine. However, I do need to make an effort. I think I need to make an effort. And I need to also admit where are the limits where I don't want to imagine because it makes me too scared and it makes me uncomfortable. It's important questions. But now you're damaged goods and you 
John 